Good morning, friends. A couple of weeks back, I started a new message series. I guess I should have called back to the basics. Um, the first message was, he's God, we're not. I mean, get this and everything else in life will begin to fall into place. Skip it, and nothing will work right. It's a great advance in the spiritual life because this leads us to a healthy submission where we can say, not my will, but yours be done. Last week, when I was at Redeemer in Springfield, my message was, God doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. The key word is desperately, which focuses on our weakness and our total separation from God because of our sin. God can get along fine without us, but we couldn't live another second without him. Once we realize our true condition, we end up on our knees confessing our sin and crying out to God for mercy. That leads us to today's message, what God demands, he supplies. You know, this is a wonderful world of hope for those who find themselves face down in the dirt with nowhere else to turn. This brings us to the very heart of the gospel. If we understand this, we know why the gospel is truly good news. I'm going to begin back in Genesis 22. You might open up a Bible if you've got one close. It's a story when God came to Abraham and told him to take his son Isaac to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 2 emphasizes the close bond between father and son when it says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. You read that story, and I've got a lot of questions here, like why would God ask a father to sacrifice his own son? I mean, if there was any discussion between Abraham and God, or if Abraham hesitated, it's not recorded in the text. All we know is that Abraham took his son and servants and set out to obey the Lord's command. And when they got to the region of Moriah, which, by the way, is modern-day Jerusalem, he said to his servants in verse 5, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship, and then we will come back to you. Well, one wonders what he was thinking and how much he understood. Hebrews 11, verse 19, indicates that he thought God would raise his son from the dead. Somehow Abraham looked beyond the immediate and found faith to believe that God would take his son from him, uh, could also give him back. As they walked along, Isaac asked what must have been a piercing question. Father, I see wood and fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? But with a kind of a flash of insight, Abraham replies in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, Christians have seen in these words kind of a prefiguring of the death of Jesus on the cross. I mean, there is Abraham, representing God, placing the wood, which would represent the cross, upon Isaac, representing Jesus. It is the Father offering his son freely and without complaint, just as God the Father offered Jesus for the sins of the whole world. So, when Abraham said God himself will provide the lamb, he was pointing not simply toward the altar on Mount Moriah, but to a greater sacrifice to be offered at the very same location almost 2,000 years later when God provided the ultimate lamb, Jesus, for the sins of the world. When they reach the right spot, of course, Abraham builds an altar. Then he ties up Isaac and places him on it. Now, I don't know what words pass between father and son, but I kind of doubt much was said. I mean, after all, what does a father say to a son in a moment like that? And what does a son who loves and trusts his father say? But then comes the moment of truth when Abraham raises his hand, prepares to plunge the knife down. 
And at that moment God spoke to Abraham in verse 12, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then as Abraham looked up, he saw a ram caught by its horns in a nearby thicket. I'm sure he ran to get that ram as fast as he could before it got away. And with that same knife he had used to take his son's life, he slits the ram's throat, drains the blood, sets the wood on fire, and offers the ram on the altar to the Lord. Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. Uh, The English rendering of the Hebrew is Jehovah-Jireh. Now, Jehirah comes from a Hebrew word meaning to see or to provide. What Abraham literally meant was, here's the place where God saw my need and provided the ram to meet my need. And we can kind of sum up the whole story then in three short phrases. God saw, God demanded, God provided. He saw everything. He uh, demanded a sacrifice and he provided what he demanded. And as we read this story, it's easy to focus on Abraham's amazing faith. But the real hero of the story isn't Abraham. The real hero is God. As great as Abraham was, God was even greater. He gave Abraham a seemingly impossible demand and then provided what Abraham lacked, a morally righteous way to meet the demand. God did what only God could do. He supplied what Abraham needed to fulfill his demand. See, what God wanted all along was not the death of Abraham's son, but rather Abraham's unquestioning obedience. He never meant for Isaac to die, but it had to happen the way it did in order for Abraham to demonstrate his faith and for God to demonstrate his grace. Several hundred years passed, and one day God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the law that would guide the people of Israel. And if you've ever read Leviticus, and... uh, very few people actually have. It's kind of a tough book to read. You know that God gave Moses instructions regarding offerings and sacrifices. And from our point of view, it was a complex system that involved different animals to be sacrificed before the Lord. It might be a lamb or a goat or a bull or, if you're a poor person, a turtle dove. The priest would take the animal, kill it, drain the blood, and burn the carcass on the altar. And the law was very specific. The animals had to be unblemished, no broken bones, no sores, no disease. I mean, don't bring one animal, an animal with one eye or with a limp. They must be without spot or blemish. All other animals were turned away. Several people over the years have, have said to me, you know, that Old Testament system seemed like a really bloody religion. And, you know, they're right about that. I mean, imagine, if you were a priest, you spent a good part of your day killing animals, draining blood, in some cases splashing the blood on the altar, in some cases preserving part of the animal for food, and then burning the rest on the altar. I mean, all day long, that would be your job, killing, draining, burning, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, as long as you served as a priest. And, you know, no matter how hard you tried to wash it off, you'd go home with the smell of blood and burning flesh on your clothes. If you served as a priest for 40 years, you'd probably have killed thousands upon thousands of animals. I mean, the blood would have filled a small lake, and when you died, another priest would come along and take your place and do the same thing. There was no end to the killing, no end to the bloodshed, and no end to the death, because that's the religion God gave to his people. Now, let me ask, do you think God really 
enjoyed seeing animals killed? I mean, was he pleased with the river of animal blood? Do you think God enjoyed the smell of burning animal flesh? Well, the prophet Micah in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, poses this question. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Now, Hebrews 10, verse 8, and actually quoting Psalm 40, answers, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. And I'd add, even though the law required them. Now, whatever else you can say, the sacrificial system was not God's ultimate desire. From the very beginning, he always planned something better. Hebrews 10, verse 1 tells us that the law was a shadow of good things to come, a divinely ordained object lesson teaching the Israelites through that monotonous repetition of blood and death and sacrifice that they dare not approach God on their own, but only through the sacrifice of something or someone offered on their behalf. In a sense, the entire legal system was meant to prepare the Jews for the day when John saw Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what an amazing statement that is. I mean, first of all, he is God's Lamb sent from heaven to earth. If we offer sacrifice, the best we can do is offer a little lamb or a goat or round up a bull and bring it to the priest. Animal blood was what we could offer. When God offers a lamb... That lamb is his own son. He's the perfect sacrifice. All those animals the priest put to death were meant to point directly to him. And second, he is God's lamb offered for our sins. I mean, the word translated takes away is used elsewhere for the rolling away of the stone that sealed Jesus' tomb. When our Lord died on the cross, he rolled away our sins once and for all. They're gone. They're blotted out. They're covered. They're rolled away forever. And third, he is God's lamb who rolls away the sins of the world. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that it's sufficient payment for the sins of the entire world, past, present, future. Anyone, anywhere, anytime can be forgiven through Jesus. There are no barriers that stand between you and eternal life. Jesus paid it all. Now, friends, all of this leaves us with this hugely important principle. It's this. There is something in God that causes him to provide whatever we need to meet his righteous demands. And that something is his grace. The word means unmerited favor or undeserved bounty and refers to the fact that God's generosity moves him to give us what we do not deserve and could never earn. He gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve, eternal punishment in hell. See, here's the whole gospel in three simple statements. God said, do this. We said, we can't. God said, all right, I'll do it for you. I mean, God demanded perfection. We couldn't meet the standard, so God sent his son, who is perfect in our place. God demanded payment for sin. We couldn't make the payment. So God sent his son, who paid the price in full on our behalf. God demanded righteousness, but all we had to offer were the filthy rags of our soiled self-righteousness. So God sent his son who took our sins so that we might be clothed with his perfect righteousness. God demanded the scapegoat who would be rejected and sent away. When Jesus died bearing our sins, the father turned his back on his own son so that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
God demanded a bloody sacrifice for sin, but we could not meet that demand. So he sent his son to die in our place, shedding his blood, paying the price, and offering himself as the final sacrifice. His blood and death and sacrifice. The Old Testament system made it clear that this is what God demands because of our sin. Without blood, without death, without sacrifice, no one could come into his presence. But we weren't even qualified to die for ourselves, much less for anyone else. We weren't perfect or pure or unblemished. Sin had marred every part of us inside and out. If God doesn't do something for us, we're sunk. We're in deep weeds. I mean, His holiness demanded a perfect sacrifice. His love sent us His Son. In this, we see the glory of the gospel. God says, you must. We said, we can't. And God says, I will. And he sent his son from heaven to earth to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is why perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Bible begins this way. For God so loved the world that he gave. Again, friends, you'll never understand why Jesus came until you grasp the meaning of those words. Jesus is God's undeserved gift given in spite of our sin. It's a gift many would despise and reject, a gift that would be brutally crucified. But even his crucifixion was part of the gift of God. In his death, he gave us eternal life. We can expand this thought in many directions. I mean, God knew we were dead in our sins, so he sent Jesus to give us life. He knew we were his enemies, so he sent Jesus to make us his friends. He knew we were like orphans, so he sent Jesus to bring us into his family. He knew we had no hope. So he sent Jesus to give us a home in heaven. He knew we were poor, so he sent Jesus to make us rich. He knew we were enslaved, so he sent Jesus to set us free. He knew we were afraid to die, so he sent Jesus to die and then raised him from the dead. He knew we had nothing, so he gave us all things in Jesus. What he demanded from us, he gave to us. What we needed, he provided. And there's so much more. I mean, he knew we needed guidance, so he gave us his word, the Bible. He knew we needed power, so he sent us the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. He knew we needed encouragement, so he gave us brothers and sisters in the church. And then he placed us in Christ, as Scripture says. At this point, the great words of the gospel come into play. Salvation, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, peace, hope, eternal life, redemption, substitution, reconciliation, adoption, justification, regeneration and glorification, all of it given to us freely in Jesus. Or think of the little word, new. New life, new hope, new heart, new mind, new position, new name, new power, new direction, new destiny. All of it is ours, all of it is free, and all of it comes to us as a gift from God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We didn't deserve any of it. We could never have earned it in a million years. There's an old hymn I remember memorizing as a child at St. John's in Seward, Nebraska. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Let's go back to the prophet Micah in chapter 7. He says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Yes, friends, who is a God like that? 
mean, where else could we find a God like this? He's a God who delights to show mercy to sinners like you and me. He loves to forgive sin. He longs for sinners to come to him. He sends his son to die on the cross and says to the whole world, whosoever will may come. You know, there's no other religion in the whole world like Christianity. We are the only people in the world who preach free grace. Ours is the only free religion in the world. Every other religion says, do this and live. Our God says, it's been done for you. That's the whole gospel in just three words. Do versus done. Every other religion is based on works. I mean, they say, go to heaven because of what you do. Give money, go to church, go to the synagogue, go to the mosque, pray toward Mecca, light a candle, pray all night, keep the feast days, give alms to the poor, uh, offer a sacrifice, keep the Ten Commandments, be baptized, follow the golden rule, be a good neighbor, uh, don't get in trouble, obey the law, stay out of jail, uh, be courteous, kind, and forgiving, try harder, do your best, follow the program, uh, live a good life. And, you know, looking at that list, it's important to note that many of those things are indeed good things. But the problem with a religion based on doing is that you can never be sure you've done enough. And if somehow you finally do enough, how do you know that you won't blow it all tomorrow by one stupid sin? But Christianity is based on grace. Sometimes you hear free grace, but that's kind of a redundant statement. It's not free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If you have to do something, anything at all to earn it or merit it or deserve it, it's not grace. Grace is no longer grace if you have to do something to earn it. The difference comes down to this. Christianity is based on what Christ has done for us. Every other religion is based on what we ourselves do. Let me bring this to a conclusion, to kind of a fine point here. Are you satisfied with what Jesus did for you on the cross? If you are, then all you have to do is rest on him for your eternal salvation. If you aren't satisfied with what Jesus did, then you've got to do something to add to his work on the cross. But let me tell you, God is satisfied with what Jesus did. Jesus himself said, it is finished. The price had been paid in full. Friends, is Jesus enough to take you to heaven, or do you think you've got to add to what he did? As I wrap up, let me just give you two simple applications. Application number one, if God has provided all that we need, then we must reach out and receive what he offers. Jesus made that invitation very clear in Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Psalm 34 tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Isaiah 1:18 offers this hope to seeking hearts. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Come to me, taste and see. Let us reason together. How simple it is to be saved. Just reach out your empty hands and take the gift God offers you. In second application, if we have experienced God's free grace, we ought to respond with profound gratitude. I mean, God has done it all. He's made a way for lost sinners to be forgiven. He found us. He saved us. He redeemed us. He gave us new life, set us on the road to heaven. Should we not give thanks to our great God every day? If the truth of grace does not move your heart, Either you don't understand your sin, or you don't understand what God has done for you. One writer said that we come to Jesus by faith, and the rest of our life is one big P.S. where we say, thank you to the Lord. 
Just think, friends, of what is yours through Jesus. He forgives with no payment whatsoever. He forgives all our sins once and for all. He promises complete reconciliation with God. He gives you assurance of your salvation. He makes you his child and adopts you into his family. He places you in Christ. He gives you access to God 24-7-365. He gives you a new heart, a new life. He gives you a home in heaven for all eternity. He promises to raise you from the dead. He promises that you will be like him and reign with him in heaven. All of this is yours in Jesus. i got to ask you, doesn't this make you want to sing? I mean, why aren't you on your feet right now praising the Lord? Remember this truth, friends. What God demands, he supplies. And all that we need, we find in Jesus. Until next week, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.